Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. I do have the passage printed on your insert. Our study of Isaiah is on hold just for the summer. And during some of these weeks, we will study together parables that Jesus used to teach spiritual truths. These are stories uh, with common elements that describe a deeper reality, a spiritual truth. There are over 30 in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, We'll just look at six over the course of the summer. We're already done with one, so five total, including today. And today is a, a popular parable. Most people have heard this story told by Jesus. Uh, it's known as the Good Samaritan, but it's better labeled the Good Neighbor. Now, you'll see organizations use the name Samaritan, even organizations that are not expressly Christian. They'll refer to this story. And there's even a law in most states and in other countries as well called the Good Samaritan Law. And it basically says that um, a person who stops to help an individual who might be dying will not uh, be held responsible if the person does eventually die because people were, are afraid sometimes to help someone after an accident because they're afraid they might do something to make it worse. And it was causing all sorts of people to die when they could have been saved. And so a law was passed in some states in our country and then also uh, in the world over. It's called the Good Samaritan Law based on this story told by Jesus. But there are many other layers to the stories Jesus tells uh, that we want to explore a bit as we read together and study together this wonderful passage. Um, the context, there was a group of over 70 people, 72 to be exact, sent out by Jesus to preach the message of the kingdom. Um, really the first mission trip recorded in scripture might be this one, where these 72 were sent out, and it's the beginning of this uh, expansion of the kingdom of God under Christ's reign, and they experience an incredible journey, and they come back to Jesus and are sharing with Christ what they witnessed when they were out telling of the kingdom. And this lawyer, who is not part of the 72, just happens to be in hearing, kind of interrupts and asks this question. He wants to talk to Jesus. He wants to test him a bit, as you see recorded in the text. And we'll follow now from that point here as I read Luke 10, starting at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, "Uh, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, him, he passed on the other side. So likewise a Levite when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. 
And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, once again we have the great privilege of witnessing through your word the greatest teacher in the history of the world doing his thing. Teach us by our Savior's words recorded here in Luke. Lord, we often tend toward doing the minimum that is required. We probably ask questions like the lawyer in order to lessen our responsibility or get off some kind of hook. Lord, so fill us with appreciation first for the grace that you have shown us in Christ that we may truly desire to love and serve everyone we meet. So grip us by your saving grace that we want to pour out mercy and grace on all those that you bring into our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, to put it very simply, there is just not enough kindness in the world today. You don't have to search long on the internet to find a video of someone being attacked while bystanders move around or walk by and do nothing to intercede or intervene. And it's not just in other countries that you see these video clips. In any city in America today, this kind of thing happens where someone is hurt, down and out, beaten, uh, robbed, whatever the case may be. Maybe just like the story, only people watch it and don't do anything or don't help the person who's hurt. And you can go to places all around our nation, even in our city, where there are people battered and broken by poverty and neglect. You can observe people being mean to one another in some form or fashion anywhere you go where there are people. May it never be said of the followers of Christ that we are mean or we are cruel or we are indifferent. May it never become that we are so busy that we can't stop and help people who have need. Or we're so busy that we can't recognize by all the means available to us now how there are, there's so much need out there that we could be part of meeting and so much pain and suffering that we could be part of relieving it. It's not enough for us simply to acknowledge that there are people who are beaten down and feel bad about it. We of all people should be not just empathetic but compassionate and then move to action finding ways to relieve the suffering of others as a way to witness to our Lord Jesus who showed the greatest compassion of anyone who ever lived toward us. J.C. Ryle, a bishop of a church several centuries ago, or just a few centuries ago, said the kindness of a Christian toward others should be a practical love, a love which entails on him self-sacrifice and self-denial, both in money and time and trouble. His charity should be seen not merely in his talking, but his acting. Not merely in his profession, but in his practice. The so-called parable of the Good Samaritan, really it's better called the parable of the Good Neighbor. And it's a classic case of Jesus, the master teacher, the only teacher who could ever discern the motives of his students. A classic case of him hearing a question that wasn't really the thing that was concerning the questioner. Now, the question that is posed by the lawyer is very important, and it's posed to Jesus in other places. But the way Jesus turns the discussion shows us what's really on the mind of the man who asks it. 
And remember the point of parables, it's going to conceal something to some people, to those who don't believe. It's going to reveal something to those who believe. So at its root, it's not so much about how a person's saved that Jesus talks about, even though that seems to be the question in the outset. It has more to do with if we are saved, if we are God's people, this is what it will look like. This is how we will view the world. This is how we will relate with other people. That will evidence that we really are saved, and it will have an impact. Only Jesus, by the way, could do this. You know, if someone asks you a question, you should answer the question. But Jesus knows what's really bothering the man, and we see it come out in the passage. The master teacher at work. And what comes out first is a misunderstanding about what it means to be a neighbor, or who our neighbor is. A misunderstanding about neighborhood. That's common even today, and we see it in what the man says. Look at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, there are many times in the gospel accounts when Pharisees, lawyers, other Jewish leaders, priests, scribes, Sadducees, they engage Jesus. Their motive is usually to trip him up. But when the text says to put him to the test, there's probably mixed motives here by what the man says next, we can see. But he's basically trying to make himself feel better about some practice he has. He's not really trying to find out how to get into heaven. In fact, he displays quite a misunderstanding just by saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. Uh, Strictly speaking, an inheritance is something that's a gift to you based on the work of another. You don't really do anything. Um, So his wording is off as it is. He misunderstands. Now, it's true, salvation is an inheritance based on the work of Christ on our behalf, and it's a gift to us. But he says, what do I do? And there's really nothing you can do. Now, there is a standard. It's God's perfect standard given to us in the law. We must keep it perfectly and we can live. But you know and I know we can't, and so that's despairing to us. When we hear that, we're driven to the only answer, and that's Jesus on our behalf, perfectly fulfilling the law and paying our punishment. So by describing the law as a way to be saved, it's really a way to drive us to Christ. But for someone who thinks they're self-justified, they use their perception of their own righteousness as a badge in a, a piece of confidence they have. But really, the man, he's not so concerned with this as he's concerned with a part of the law he was struggling with. You'll see what I mean. The lawyer stands up to put him to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man responds with really a textbook answer. I mean, it's a perfect answer for this kind of a question. He combines uh, a passage from Deuteronomy 6 with a passage from Leviticus and gives Jesus a great answer. And it captures the whole law. And he answered, verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Neighbor, key word, key descriptive word here. Combining these two Old Testament passages has a sum effect of capturing all the Ten Commandments. The first half of the Ten Commandments about our love for God, our duty towards God, The second half is about our 
love and duty towards man. Love God and love your neighbor. So Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, the man doesn't find it satisfying and walk off. Ooh, I'm, I'm good. Something Jesus says there bugs him. Now, I hope it bugs all of us. I mean, it, Jesus is purposefully drawing this guy out. And so he tells him, okay, well, you got it. Love God, love man. Just go do that and you'll live. You'll be saved. And the man bothered by the neighbor part. Neighbor, Ooh, wait a minute. I mean, I love God perfectly, which, you know, he's wrong on that too. But he's keying in on something that was tweaking him, as it should tweak all of us. Who is my neighbor? It says I'm supposed to love God in this lofty way and my neighbor as myself. Wait a minute. He's starting to think of people who might testify that he's not so neighborly. I mean, maybe the people right in, you know, in your pew know of you one way, but maybe, maybe the referee in the game you played a few days ago sees you differently. Maybe the person that you talk to a certain way at the, at the grocery store, you know, we think you're a real good neighbor, but maybe they might not. I'm just saying, maybe they don't. Or fill in the blank of something that ha- all of us can think of somebody that might not testify to us being a very good neighbor right now. And the man's thinking, wow, lots weighing this. I just asked him how to, be, to live forever. And he said, love God, love your neighbor. Well, I need to nail down what he means by neighbor. Because what the man thinks about neighbor is probably the typical thing a Jew of his day would think. Neighbor is defined by those who are like you, those who are in alliance with you, who have the same creed as you. In some way, uh, have a solidarity with you. Those are my neighbors. Those are the people I'm close with. Those are the people I'm responsible to be a good neighbor towards. They are my neighbors. That's a misunderstanding of what it means to be a neighbor and who a neighbor is. And before we go further, let's be honest about, let's check some of our, our discrimination at the door for here, for a minute. Is there a way in which you might look down at someone else for whatever reason? Could happen within the church. Some reason why you judge someone in a certain way. But it happens on a widespread level. It could be a race issue, a class issue. It could be uh, an organization. They're part of this organization or that. Do we have a tendency to discriminate against human beings because of something about them and their association or who they are or how we view them? Um, I totally get that it would be completely politically incorrect for us to admit this out loud. But in our hearts, do we pause when we meet someone who's not like us and look down upon them or judge them in a certain way. Because the first step at us recognizing God's call to us to be good neighbors is to recognize our tendency, our sinful tendency, to look at people created in the image of God poorly, sinfully. We have to acknowledge it's true. It happens to us. Maybe it isn't in one area, but maybe in another. And this is what tweaks the lawyer. He asks the question because he knows when Jesus says neighbor, he's like, oh, I hope he doesn't mean this person or that person. Surely he wouldn't mean that I have to be nice to them. Now, the man asks Jesus to identify our neighbors. Jesus then tells a story, and he does even better than answering the man's deficient question. He answers in a way that gives the full picture of how we should think of our neighbors and who we are. Look at verse 30. We're introduced to some bad neighbors. I think we would agree. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, 
leaving him half dead. There is a treacherous road that goes from Jerusalem at a higher elevation down to Jericho. It winds through some craggy rock-type valleys that are places that are dangerous, especially as it nears nightfall. And it would be well known to the hearer that this is a place you would want to be careful traveling to and from. But Jericho is a place of much commerce, and it would be necessary, if you're coming from Jerusalem, perhaps to worship, to go back to Jericho where you may live or have business. And this is the way the story works. The man on his own falls among robbers who stripped him and beat him severely, severely to the point of describing him as half dead, probably laying there with open wounds, stripped naked, um, moaning perhaps or looking dead. Just clearly the man is going to die if he stays there unattended. And we have two individuals who come by him first. Verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He saw him, and then he moved over and passed on the other side. Now, people have tried to make up reasons for why the priest might have done this. The text doesn't give us any indication. We could guess that he's coming back from Jerusalem. He's a priest. You know, he can't touch anything that's dead or it would defile him, and he maybe thought the guy was dead. And so that's his excuse, perhaps. Uh, He was moving quickly because it was going to be nightfall, and he didn't want to be stuck out there in the dark. Fill in the blank, any any possible explanation. But the man's a priest. He's supposed to be religious. He's supposed to be someone who cares about God and what God would say in the great commandment. The same thing the lawyer gave as a response. The priest would know, love God and love your neighbor. But he doesn't view this man as his neighbor who's wounded, and he goes right by him. He does nothing for the man in need. Second, verse 32, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. He does the same thing. Now, a Levite, our priests are Levites, but all Levites aren't priests. And the Levites that are not priests were well off. They were usually pretty rich and socially high up on the ladder. And so now you have a Levite who does the same thing as the priest. Now, the priest had maybe a religious or a moral reason why he could have stopped and taken care of the man. The Levite has probably a social reason. There are all the reasons covered for why you should stop and help this guy. But they don't. They don't view him as their neighbor. And they don't see themselves as neighbors. And they go right by the man, basically leaving him for dead. Which is somewhat shocking when you think of this road that anyone could have traveled. The lawyer probably traveled himself. The lawyer could have been the victim. The lawyer, though, could have been the priest. So Jesus grips with this story like he does. And then we meet the next person who comes by. And we're introduced to a good neighbor. But before we move to that classic picture of the Samaritan, let's be honest with maybe the excuses we might make about not being more compassionate towards those who we know are struggling and suffering. It may not be every day that you pass somebody who is in the situation of this man. But we all know people within our spheres of life and activity who are suffering and are struggling. Is our excuse that we're too busy with ourselves that we can't do something to help relieve that? Is, our, is it out of mind? Is that why we don't do more than we do? Just be honest. 
Do we make excuses? Are we too busy to notice the suffering around us, to recognize the opportunity before us to show this mercy, to have this compassion? Are we bad neighbors? Well, we have a beautiful picture of a good neighbor starting in verse 33. Now, again, I want you to notice this. Don't lose this as we're introduced to the Samaritan. Do you see what Jesus is doing? The lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? And what is he really doing? He's trying to find out the minimum he has to do to qualify for keeping the law so he can be saved. He's looking for the minimum. Who is my neighbor? And he's thinking outside of himself. Who, who counts? Jesus doesn't respond with a story to explain that directly. He explains that. But what he's really concerned about is, what kind of neighbor are you? Not who is my neighbor, but what kind of neighbor am I? Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now you will, among all crowds hearing this sermon today, I'm sure somewhere else in the world someone's preaching on the Good Samaritan, but only you will have just gotten through Isaiah and know who the Assyrians are. You're sick of the Assyrians by now. I mean, I know I am. I mean, let's get to the Babylonians. And how many Assyrians do you really know, right? Well, the Assyrians play a part in who the Samaritans are. Because when the northern kingdom, just before Hezekiah's time, was taken, uh, the Assyrians deported many of the Israelites, but intermarried with those who were left. And the result of that union between the Assyrians and the Israelites were the Samaritans. And right away, the southern kingdom, the Judah, the, the members of Judah, the true Israel, if you were, they looked down upon the Samaritans immediately because they were half-breeds who were from the Assyrians. And it was a reminder of the judgment of God on them. And so they were despised. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews of this time. And to make matters worse in the mind of the Jews, the Samaritans thought they had a claim on God's covenant. So they weren't allowed in the temple of the Jews, the full-blooded Jews, so they made their own temple at Mount Gerizim. That's why when the woman meets Jesus at the well, she says, where do our people worship? Is it over here at Gerizim or is it at Jerusalem? She's talking about the Samaritans in that division. And so here's this Jewish lawyer asking Jesus a question. And the guy in the story who most exemplifies the love of God or the character of God, is a Samaritan. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. This is this masterful teaching. He's already getting to the biases and the prejudices of the man, the lawyer who's asking the question, by even posing the idea that the Samaritan would do the right thing, that the Samaritan is the example of a good neighbor. I mean, he's breaking down what needs to be broken down in the man who asked the question, and in us, I hope. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He had compassion. What a picture to, to, to depict the Samaritan as having a Christ-like attribute. It's not making a full statement of what the Samaritan's belief system was, but he had compassion, and that's what caused him to stop. Jesus is the picture of compassion. Compassion shown to us lost sinners. And this is the descriptor for the man as he pauses to help the guy who is half dead. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. Start to listen to what develops. 
He's preaching the gospel, which is a message of salvation by faith in him, in Christ. You can't compromise that the gospel, to go forward, has to be the message given. But please recognize how this story impacts our preaching of the gospel. Because Jesus himself is going through and preaching the gospel. And it says in Matthew 9, "...and healing every disease and every affliction." When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So, as God makes us a body-soul nexus, he saves our souls by the message of the gospel. We still have this body hanging on until glory, and it suffers, and it struggles, and it pulls at our souls, uh, and it causes us struggle in our souls even as we suffer from things. And God brings relief to that, and he calls us to where we can bring relief to that to people so that their souls might be tended to. And Jesus does it too often to make it a fluke. He talks about it too much to make it just a one-off. In Matthew 14, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. He was preaching and teaching. He was wore out. He rested. They came. They still needed more. They were suffering and straining. They were hungry, and he had compassion on them and met some of their physical needs. In Matthew 15, Jesus called his disciples and said, said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Well, what were they doing? He was teaching. He was preaching. He was explaining the gospel. And he had compassion on them and saw they needed to eat. And he said, I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. He didn't say, you know what? I gave them the gospel. Go away. One might argue that you haven't properly completed gospel ministry until you've assessed that issue. How have I helped in the way I can help, in the way God's gifted me to help to meet all these physical needs so as to make the way plain for them to believe on Christ and believe what we say about Christ? Matthew 15, or Matthew 20, excuse me, a beautiful picture of this same feature that's descri- that describes the Samaritan about Christ. And as they went out of Jericho, interesting, it's the same city, A great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. In pity, he had compassion. He felt for them. Back to our text, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Well, when one has compassion, it's a step beyond empathy. Empathy is to feel bad for them because you can imagine what it feels like. Compassion is to feel like you want to do something about this. I really feel for and with this, and it drives me to action. In verse 34, that's what it says. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So he takes of his own resources and starts to give first aid to this man. Then 
in verse 34, he set him on his own animal, probably the animal he was riding on, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So he goes to an inn, and an inn in these days were precarious places, but it's the best he could do uh, to keep this man in a place of healing, where he could be healing. So he brings him to a hotel and inn and took care of him. So he stays with him at least the first night and continues to tend the wounds. Verse 35. In the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So the man uh, puts himself in danger by slowing down and helping. He personally takes care out of his own resources. He gives quite a bit of his own funds as a deposit because two denarii, that's two days' wages. And then he does something kind of amazing. He tells an innkeeper he doesn't know, and I'll pay you whatever it costs to keep him healing when I come back. Now, I don't know about you, but that, that could be a good opportunity for, extor- for some extortion. Now, I'm not accusing hospitals, hospitals of extortion, but have you ever looked at your bill, like after a baby was born, and look at the itemized list? I made the mistake of asking for that itemized list one time. And I saw a, a shot they gave my wife at some point for 300 bucks. Now, if I had known that, I would have said, don't give her that shot. I mean, maybe I would have. 300 bucks. I mean, I think there is lots of places in our commerce. If you ever look at your phone bill, look at it really closely. I knew a guy in college who would take all our phone bills. This is, this is before cell phones. But our phone bills that we would pay for, that they would bill us uh, for separately for long-distance calling... And he would find constant errors that the phone company would just put two cents here, five cents there, ten cents there. It would add up a lot for the phone company. Um, here's the innkeeper being told, hey, I'll pay whatever it takes to get this guy well. When the guy comes back, how's the guy going to know? I mean, the opportunity for extortion, he just put himself completely out there. He didn't calculate the cost, so he gave the least amount to help this man. He saw the man's need, and he said, I'm going to meet it. Because he had compassion on him. This is a good neighbor. And it's not the question the lawyer asked. Who's my neighbor out there? Is it the wounded guy? That's not where Jesus is going with this. The answer to who is my neighbor will be found in what kind of a neighbor you are. Green, who comments on this passage, says, The care the Samaritan offers is not a model of moral obligation, but of exaggerated action, grounded in compassion, that risks much more than than could ever be required or expected. He stops on the Jericho Road to assist someone he does not know, in spite of the self-evident peril in doing so. He gives of his own goods and money freely, making no arrangements for reciprocation in order to obtain care for this stranger. He enters an inn, itself a place of potential danger, and he even enters into an open-ended monetary relationship with an innkeeper, a relationship in which the chance of extortion is high. That's what a good neighbor does. A good neighbor notices people in need. He's not moving so fast, or even if they're moving fast, they'll slow down when they see the priority of someone created in the image of God's suffering. They feel compassion and tenderness for the struggles of others, like Jesus had and has for us, and offers practical deeds of mercy, even when it's costly or inconvenient. He didn't lay a gospel track on the dying guy and say, I hope you trust Jesus. He shows no boundaries for helping others, no prejudice towards their fellow human being, his fellow human being. And Jesus asks the question that has completely turned this guy to where Jesus wants him to be, at least in what he's interacting with. And again, the crowds are watching, so Jesus is teaching more than the lawyer. He's teaching us. 
Do you think Jesus, when he's telling the parables, know we'd be sitting here listening to his teaching? You better believe he did. He does. And so we're listening in again. Do we get it? He who has ears to hear, hear this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Not who is my neighbor. That, that doesn't really matter. Front level. The first thing that matters is this question. Who of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? What should my people look like, Jesus is saying. Such an obvious and vivid story. And what does the man say? The man cannot even say Samaritan. He said the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. And he's still not saying, if you go do this, then you'll be saved. If this grips you, if you get this, if you understand what it means to be a neighbor, if you understand what I expect of my people, a person who says they believe in me, then you go do this. Just go do this. You will do this. You won't be like, boy, that's tough, or boy, that's a little... I get it. Everybody's my neighbor. Everybody God puts in your providential path is your neighbor. There's kind of a gospel capstone, if you will, even though the passage isn't meant to be an exposition on how one is saved. It has implied there, one who is saved will get this. They'll have ears to hear this, and they'll do this. And the doing it isn't getting them saved, it's evidencing they are. They have received compassion and mercy from God, and so they have to give this to others. They can't look at someone who needs mercy and compassion and turn it away after what we've been shown. How could I possibly walk in the other side of the road when my fellow human being is down in the ditch? I can't do that. Not if I'm saved, I can't. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Philip Ryken, who was the pastor at 10th Press after James Boyce died and now the president of Wheaton College, in speaking on this passage, summarizes it wonderfully. If all we ever do is talk about love, our talk is only talk, and people will easily ignore us. But when we show them love by being good neighbors, our actions and affections confirm the story we tell about Jesus, the cross, and the resurrection. That's why we do the missions we do. It's a combination of mercy and grace. It's uh, the gospel in word and deed. You have to have the word of the gospel go forth. No one's preaching a social gospel. You just do good things for people, and that's the gospel. No, the gospel is a message of Jesus died for our sins. He's the only way we could be right with God. But in connection, the way Jesus did it is to also tend to the physical needs of the people. So it wouldn't be a barrier to them believing this message, but it would also show that the people who are exhibiting this compassion had been changed themselves, and the message is true. That's how we know. One of the best ministries our church has been introduced to that you have all been part of by your own giving and several donate lots of hours is the food pantry at New Hope PCA. You may think about food pantry. Do you realize hundreds of cars go through, through, through there every week with families in need uh, feeding their families uh, in ways that they could not afford or be able to do? That's Johnson County, USA. People are in great need. And that ministry that you are all part of is a, is a word and deed ministry. And it's a mercy ministry, first on the front line, with all intention to continue to present Christ through the mercy we have for our fellow human beings who need to eat. Right here, I mean, miles from us. Every Sunday night, a group of men from our church go to Lansing Prison and open the word and fellowship with prisoners, and they offer a fellowship that these men don't have any longer. 
and show them a mercy that they don't have in any other way. And even, by extension, provide for families connected to these men that they could not provide themselves. Just tonight, we're going to get to come back at 6 o'clock and hear Mary and Woody talk about a ministry of mercy and grace to Moldova that's been going on for years since Woody's been leading, since God called Woody to go on these ministries. A ministry of classic word and deed. You know with Woody there, the word's going forth. You also know that mercy's going forth, and they bring funding that you provided to give to needs that are physical and real to help alleviate any boundaries that people might have about the gospel message they're bringing. Uh, tomorrow, Monday morning, you will meet, if you're working at BBS, some child who is part of this community that is struggling with something that you can't believe. And you're going to meet that child. You're going to have a chance to minister to them in word and in deed. And who knows what relationship that opens up with you and them and us and them. Next Saturday, the Omaha mission team gets to go and minister among the people of the Omaha nation. There is a long history, and it's a difficult history, between uh, the America and the Native Americans. And one of the ways we bridge the, the gap that has been breached is by loving those people in any way Christ would give us a chance to do. And a lot of it right now is by mercy ministry. And there's a lot of mercy that's needed. But I can tell you we've been going for This is our fourth year. And every year the, the boundary between the people we see every year starts to become less apparent. And there's a bit more openness. They'll say a little more to you about their life. They're a little less skeptical about who you are and what you're doing. And through the ministry of mercy, the ministry of the message of the gospel gains greater hearing. Then a week later, we'll send a team to Juarez to do the same thing, a place that's more established but has the same needs. So many opportunities, but you don't have to go on any of those trips. You can walk out of this place, and God is going to present you with opportunities to meet the needs of people who, who are desperate, who are broken, who are battered, and need to feel the love of Christ. And you may be the person, you may be the family, we may be the people that meet that need in their lives. What a grace of God to give us this opportunity to express our thanks for the compassion of God to us in Christ by showing compassion to anybody that God might send our way who needs it. And every one of us needs some of it, don't we? I love how the Apostle John, the, the Apostle of Love, wrote, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How can you know the love of God if you won't show it? Little children... Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the compassion and mercy that you have shown us in salvation through Christ. As we have experienced your love and grace, so make us to be loving and gracious towards all that we meet. Give us a clear vision of what it means to be a good neighbor and why this is so important for the witness of Christ on the earth. Locally, give each of us opportunities to receive into our lives those who are suffering. Even this week, as a church, bless our VBS with opportunities for gospel witness through mercy, through word, and through deed. Please bless our Omaha team as they minister mercy on the Omaha reservation. Please bless our Juarez team with a trip filled with personal encounters that call for mercy and grace. Lord, may we never ask who is our neighbor, but rather may we regularly ask you to give us grace to be good neighbors to all. 
pray this in Christ's name. Amen.